Church, good to see you. Great to see you, in fact. If you're a, a new person or a visitor, we're really glad that you're here to be worshiping with us. We, uh, we love getting into the Word of God, lifting up our voices to the glory of God, uh, as you can tell. So can you go to Mark chapter 4, because we are continuing through our series in the book of Mark called The King Has Come. This is the, uh, a very fast-paced gospel that Mark tells, and his, his overarching point is to, is to show that Jesus is the God-man who has come for salvation and the establishing of his kingdom. And we're getting to a point, we've really seen uh, uh, theologians and commentators sort of break up the book of Mark into different sections, and it's not by the chapter, of course, they just added later, uh, we know that. But, but what they, they really see that we're coming to the end of one of the introductory sort of uh, uh, overarching section of the book of Mark. We've sort of seen Jesus come and preach and proclaim and establish and choose his disciples and and he's starting everything out. And now, after we've seen great amounts of people following him, we've seen great amount of opposition as people want to murder him. We've seen people agree with him, people disagree with him. Now we're getting to the point where Jesus is starting to tell us, not just proclaim that the kingdom is here, but he's actually going to start telling us what the kingdom is like. We're going to see in the next week uh, multiple parables about the, the kingdom being, you can just look ahead there in, in uh, chapter 4, about the, how the kingdom is going to be like a seed that grows, like a lamp that you don't put under a basket. It's going to be like a, uh, a, a, a harvest that grows without anybody seeing it overnight. And so as we start out there, Jesus actually, or let's say Mark, by the Holy Spirit, when he ordered these stories, he started with the parable of the sower. And these are in slightly different orders in the Gospels. But in Mark's version, he starts with Jesus telling the parable that we're going to read in a moment of the sower. It's going to be the one where he sows seed and it falls on the different grounds that is Jesus' most famous parable, probably outside of the lost sheep or the prodigal son. It's so well known quite well understood. It's pretty simple now that it's been explained to us probably in your Christian life or whatever, but I, I want to emphasize to us the point of the parable, which Jesus says early on. And we're going to read it, but the point is the individual and our intentional response to the Word of God when it is preached to us. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to look at what the kingdom on the whole is like and what the people of God do as a whole. But today, I really want us to to, to focus in on our own hearts, our own response to the Word of God and to the faith that is preached. I want you to ask yourself where you fit in terms of these four soils that Jesus explains. I want you to, as Jesus will tell us, be very careful how you hear. So can you go to Mark chapter 4 and verse 1? I'm going to read there all the way through to verse 20, so it will be quite a chunk, uh, and then we will start with the exposition. Hear the word of the living God. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and here he will quote, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes away and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones who are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. May God bless the reading of his precious word to us this morning. Can I hear an amen? amen? I want us to be those who, in light of what Jesus is telling here, not for the ones around us, not for the, the man on stage, not for anything else, but our own individual relationship with the living God, who is either our judge or our savior. Would we be careful this morning to test ourselves how we hear the word of God when it comes? <clears throat> So, of course, I'm not going to go through and exegete the first nine verses because that would be to do injustice to Jesus who does it for us anyway in the last 11 verses. So we're just going to go straight there. You can go right down to verse 10 because the parables evoke in the disciples, and this is the 12 disciples plus the others who were with them. Maybe there were hundreds. Maybe there were dozens. We don't exactly know. We know that at the end of Jesus' life, when he is ascended into heaven, there is the tight 11, the, the 11 apostles, because Judas is dead, and some other men and women, so that there was a total of 120 followers of Jesus who had withstood the persecution, who had truly uh, uh, received the Holy Spirit that day on Pentecost, and were therefore some of the first fruits before the crowd. But anyway, all that to say, we have the 12 and then a, a few of the faithful in a circle who had who had, after Jesus told this parable and many other confusing parables, they, they saw the disciples around Jesus, they had questions, they weren't uh, 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 satisfied to, to hear a nice sermon by a seaside with a beautiful breeze, eating their, their popped grain on a Saturday afternoon. They wanted to press in and know the meaning. They were never satisfied to simply hear the word, they wanted to understand it. So they push in in verse 10 and they ask about the parables. Now, we see... From Jesus' answer, 
that there was probably two questions going on. And in fact, in the other versions of the Gospels, we see these two questions. First question, which I think we, we probably have today, many of us, why the parables? Why does Jesus tell riddles and parables all the time? If you grew up in church, you might have been told falsely that Jesus used those parables to make it clearer for everybody. He didn't use big biblical scriptural words. He used everyday language to make it clear to everybody exactly what he's saying. In quite a turn of events, today Jesus tells us the exact opposite. He says, I use parables to confuse people so that they can hear and not understand, not repent, and not be saved. Sounds like a confusing evangelistic message coming from Jesus, the Savior from heaven, and yet he's going to explain to us why. So that's one question, is why the parables? And the second question will be, specifically this parable about the sower and the, and the soils and the seed, what does that mean? So we're going to cover both. Why parables in Jesus' own language, and what does the, soil, the parable of the soils mean? Well, I want you to see here that, that uh, let's go to verse 11. He said in response to this, First question. He says, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Your version might say mysteries. When we hear of mysteries in the scripture, don't think new agey, strange mystery being this, this sort of other level of Christianity that you arrive at if you meditate enough or, or, or do the right chance. What the Bible means by mysteries are things that we could never know unless God makes it clear through his messengers. And so this is used in the New Testament for the Gentiles coming into the, in to be saved as well as the Jews. This is used for the, you know, the incarnation, how Jesus can be both God and man. It's, it's used for how marriage is a picture of the church. It's used for all sorts of things. So let us know that what is mysterious and unknown, God delights in making known to his people. And Jesus is saying here, what is secret cannot be figured out by people, cannot be arrived at by philosophers, cannot be understood if you, if you read enough and travel to enough mountaintops. You will never arrive at divine truth unless God speaks to us. And he has in his word and in his son. Amen. So, so Jesus says here that the secrets have been told. The kingdom of God and all the mysteries and the secrets therein have been revealed to you. And he's speaking only to those who have drawn near to ask. He says, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And here he will quote the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who at the beginning of his ministry was told, you'll go and you'll preach and you'll proclaim the word of God to the people, but they will hear and not understand. So that while the outward human call is coming to their ears, the spiritual call that is needed to actually awaken them from the inside will not occur. And so your words, the good seed, will go out, it'll fall on dead hearts, and they will perish in their sins. God's promise, though, is that there will be a remnant, a small amount, saved out of Israel, that will hear the word, that will repent, and will be saved. The question still remains, why is Jesus trying to intentionally confound and confuse people who seem to be genuine seekers. It, it doesn't seem very seeker-sensitive, Jesus. He wouldn't be on my board if we were planning a church wanting to know how to win the masses for Jesus. He just, I would put him over on, on the tea-serving team because he doesn't know how to reach people, apparently, it seems. But this is part of what Scripture shows to us. In fact, this is one of the mysteries. This is why we need the Word of God. 
Because none of us arrive at this doctrine or this understanding on our own. So, so here we are, Jesus telling us why he does this. The reality is that he uses a word here. Uh, he says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all of them? And he's just said that you, I will tell the secrets. Those outside, I will not. And down in verse <clears throat> 24, he will use the language I've used already, saying, pay attention what you hear. With the measure you use it, you will, it also will be measured to you. He says in verse 25, here's the key. In fact, in Matthew's telling of the gospel, Jesus uses this line at this point while answering this question. He says, To the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. One of the realities of Holy Scripture is that we learn that what is not improved upon is removed from us. In other words, if, if God gives you blessing, maybe it's being born in a Christian home, a, a Western society where the gospel is easily accessible. Maybe to this day it was those who were in the, in the Jewish nation, going to synagogue every day, reading the scriptures, the oracles of God. Jesus says, to you has been given a great deal of divine revelation. If you do not take that, receive it, and improve upon it, not improving it, but improving your soul's stance by it, if you do not do that, then even what you have received will be taken away. So let's work this into the, the parable situation. Jesus preaches to the masses. He heals thousands. He, he, he preaches in a way that is interesting, attention-grabbing, and truly shocking. He raises people from the dead, throws sickness away, and gets rid of demons. You bet he is drawing a crowd. But he knows, just like Isaiah that the crowds, the masses, are not all genuine. As he says in John chapter 6, not everybody, not everybody who's in the crowd has been brought by the Father. And only those who are being brought spiritually by the Father will actually come to him. So here's Jesus. He tells parables in a confusing way so that all those who are here to impress a friend, join in the crowd, get free food, get a healing, they come, they leave, and what they heard is a judgment against them. But to those who really know God, or who are being worked on in the heart by God, those are those who, who on, on the closing of the message, on the finishing of the parables, when it's dinner time and it's, it's due uh, to go home, and they stop and they turn around and they press in and they say, Jesus, I need to understand. It's not enough that I'm hearing. I need to know. And it's those people who would hear the word and improve upon it, seek to apply it, seek to understand it and glorify God through it, to those are revealed the mysteries. So, we have two words in, in the original Greek. One is, I'm going to give you an easy, uh, easy entry-level, free seminary class today. <clears throat> the words are akouin and hyper-akouin, right? We all know what that means. Acoustic, if you have an, an acoustic guitar... It, uh, 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 the, the, we see the word coming through there, akouin. It means sound or hearing. We see the English word there coming out of the Greek. Hyper means extra. Amp it up. Turn it up to 11. So, and, and one word over here, akouin, means, in the Greek, translated, hear. As in, hear with your ears. And hyper akouin 
means either listen very carefully or it is translated as obey. So you see in the mind of Jesus, there's hearing and then there's hearing. There's hearing which is only hearing and, and everybody here today will be doing that, try and escape these speakers. But not everybody will super hear. Not everybody will truly hear. And truly hearing is obedience. Truly hearing means accepting, receiving, trusting, and obeying. And so Jesus says to this great crowd, he who truly hears, if you have that ear, if you have that spiritually given ear within your soul to truly understand the mysteries of God, then seek to hear and press in and do not let a single page of scripture or phrase of a sermon go misunderstood if you seek to know God as he's revealed himself. And so as we start now looking at the actual parable itself of the four soils, I want you to get a picture in your mind. Of course, in Australia and Western countries, we have enormous million-dollar agricultural machinery. I, I, I think you know it was quite different back in Jesus' day. Even today in the East, they do things differently. But, but the, the setting was, and very likely right near where Jesus was, was this very visible picture. What they would have is, 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 a, sto- uh, is a path, not toiled and, and, and poured tarmac all over it. It's just ground that people walk over a lot and force a path. Hard, trodden clay. And right next to it uh, would often be growing, would, would be the, the stony ground that is sort of trodden on as you pull over to the side to let the semi go over, uh, and then you pull back onto the main lane. And so it's rocky, it's by no means soil. And then just off to that would be weeds growing, little thistles, and, and over to the side of that would be the actual field of lush grass, harvest, or whatever it be. And there's one commentator who says, I, I was in Israel. I'm walking along the path, I'm reading that parable, I look to my right, I'm on a pathway, then there's stones, then there's weeds, then there's a luscious harvest. I've lived this parable. And just as the sower would go along, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, go to all the care that we might uh, uh, go to with our great industrial uh, agriculture. The, they would just throw the seed around because these paths would go through their field. You can't be too careful, and so they throw. And in one throw, they may throw seed on every type of soil. And so in the same picture, I want you to realize that as I'm here bringing the word of God and as Jesus was there on the seaside preaching to the people, he also was looking at four different types of people. And today I'm looking at people who all look the same to me, and yet God knows that there are four different types of people here today. And maybe you're not even aware of where you sit or where you stand, but God knows. And and it needs to be heard by us carefully. Some of us are not the good soil. We will have among our people, as in, in the one sermon that goes out, it will fall on hard pathways. It will fall on stony ground. It will fall on weedy soil. And it will fall on good soil. So let us start looking so that we can understand the mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus says... Then in verse 14, he starts explaining, the sower sows the word. Well, that's, that's pretty clear. The, the word going out is like the seed in the parable. And the first soil that it falls on is the path, or let's say the unresponsive heart. This one, as soon as the word goes out, not because of the word or because of the seed in the picture, but because of the nature of the heart, the ground, the path, Satan comes through, 
picks up that word and it has no opportunity to go in, break down and bud into fruit. And we might hear that and say, well, this is the person, maybe it's demonic possession. Maybe this is just somebody victimized by Satan, that, that Satan's stealing the word away, poor person. But we need to see here cooperation. Cooperation between Satan and the hearer. And, and I don't even think this is an intentional cooperation. Goodness, some of us are just coming today and, and we're here, we're unresponsive. We, we are here and we can think of five other places we'd rather be, but because of our wife or our you know, social culture or our kids or maybe our parents or maybe whatever it is, we're, we're here, we find ourselves here. And as soon as the sermon is over, it will slide out of your memory, not go into your heart, just like water off of a stone, it will disappear and you will go back to all those other things you care so much more about. You're, you're here and you're unresponsive. And you don't realize that you're in league with Satan. That he is here this morning seeking who he might pluck the word away from. And, and if you're somebody who simply comes through the formality of religion, or you like checking out what's going on in, in different places, and, and I'll check this church out, or you're simply here for the social construct of it, friends, you are hand in hand with Satan destroying your soul. What you need is the word of God, the gospel of Christ, free grace, forgiveness and redemption for every soul. You need that to enter your heart. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to be somebody who can even pass seminary grade exams on this. You need to receive it into your heart. And if you are this first soil, you have not yet you have no interest in it today. Even, even my plea right now to please consider where you are. And if you understand yourself to be in this state, cry to the Lord in your heart for mercy to change and break up your heart that it might be able to receive this word you've heard so often. Even as I say that, some people will simply move on. Wait for the next point. Wait for the food afterwards. It's all just a formality. This is the path. This is the unresponsive heart. In Jesus' day, this might have been people who just came for the miracle show. There was an enormous crowd. Of course you're going to go and follow that, see what's going on. What's the next upstarting Messiah? What's he trying to do? And yet they receiving all the same seed, word, preaching as the disciples did. They benefited nothing. Let me say, though, that the word never leaves you unchanged. It's not as if the seed comes and you either change from it or nothing happens. There is always an effect. It either comes and enters you and changes you as the fourth soil, or it comes and condemns you further, compounds your hardness, increases your callousness, so that next time you hear, you'll be all that more practiced at ignoring it all that more skillful at, at ignoring your conscience and not listening to the words of the Holy Spirit. So again, I beseech you, if this is somewhere that you believe you are today, then spend time this afternoon, this very moment, in our final song, during the prayers of communion, come and, or even after the service, talk to one of us. We want to talk to you about the state of your soul. But then there was a second time. And Jesus said that the the word went out and it was plucked away by the birds, but the second style, the second soil, it fell among the rocky ground. Look at verse 16. And this is what I meant by those who were the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, 
immediately receive it with joy. We're going to speak now about the emotional or impulsive stony hearts. The impulsive people, immediately they receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately, the same word that explains their reception, immediately they received it with joy, and now immediately, just as quickly and impulsively, they fall away. These are those who give fleeting emotional responses to the Word of God. Even sometimes, and, and this is what makes it so difficult to be a preacher or evangelist, people make life-changing decisions, promises, commitments. They change lifestyles. They do all that they can because this Word that you've preached is, is soul-changing, eternal. My goodness, give it to me. Let me be the most committed member of your church. Join the team. Give as much as I can. Serve all that I can. And these people are joy to those who love seeing souls saved. And yet Jesus is saying that to the human eye, spiritual life can be counterfeited. It can be. They have an emotional, impulsive response, but they are in fact still dead in their sins. You might have cut roses or flowers for a loved one, or you might have, I know, bought them from the, the, the florist and you give them to somebody and, and for a few days, you look at them and they look exactly the same as the ones in the ground. There's, there's really no telling the difference. You Just to take a picture of the, just the flowers themselves, you would not be able to tell the difference between them. And yet, because one of them has roots and therefore a life source, and the other one has no roots, time will tell. Let me ask you, as you... As you look at a plant that's maybe even its roots chopped off and just shoved back into the soil, if you look at that and you look at one with roots, you can't tell the difference. How would you tell the difference, of course, is a simple question. You give it a tug. And if one simply, quickly slides on out, then it is clear it had no roots. It has no roots. And the one that does not budge, oh, it, it shakes a little, some dirt is moved, the bugs fall off, maybe even some loose leaves are lost, but it remains fast. Let me ask you, what is, in, in the Christian life, what is that test? What is the shaking and the pulling and the tugging on our souls which proves those who have roots and those who don't? Jesus says, it's affliction and persecution. When we often talk about afflictions and persecutions, either people coming against you, your work friends, family members, old mates, your old drinking buddies, them mocking you for your new lifestyle and what you're trying to tell them, your old sport pals, whatever it is, they, they come against you. Or sometimes it's simply the afflictions of life. Jesus uses both words. Hard times and persecuted times, they come on us. And they're often in the New Testament spoken of as tests or trials. And we can wrongly think that it's God in heaven sort of testing his chemical, testing his plants, which one's real. He has no way of knowing until he puts us through trials. But Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers of the 18th century, said that when God does that, he's not testing for his sake. He's not trialing to learn something else. He's testing that we might learn. He's sending affliction so that we can understand whether our faith is real or not. 
And so I hope that we, at the moment, are able to reinterpret our struggles and trials in life. Maybe the desertion of a loved one, the death of someone near to us, financial or social impoverishment, whatever it be, sickness. Don't see those as God testing you because you haven't shown enough fruit. Or, or God torturing you because he's just like that. Or, or don't see it even as God trying to cast you out See it as God encouraging you, giving to you evidence that, that you might go through this tugging, this pulling, this storm, affliction and persecution. And as the afterwards, you, you look around and you see that I'm still in the faith. I still hold fast to Jesus' gospel. At that point, you can be sure. The unseeable reality stands true. There are roots in this soul. So don't, don't trust your emotions and don't despise the discipline of the Lord through affliction. It is good, good, loving, fatherly, farming thing to do, to test those plants. So we ought not to test our, uh, sorry, trust our emotions because if you trust your emotions and you're a false convert, maybe this is you, maybe you're someone who's, who's responded tremendously to the word, who, who podcasts every sermon you can find, you do all that you, they tell you to do, you're just chasing hard after this thing, Christianity. And you look inside and, and, and you hear something like this, that you're supposed to test yourself and, and ask, which soil am I? And you say, well, I'm, I woke up pretty darn happy in Jesus today. I sung another few songs on the, my, way on, uh, my way here in the car. I'm going to listen to more at home. I'm doing a lot. Look at me. And you know what? I'm not like those pesky first soil people who sit here unresponsive and leave. I'm on fire. I've got passion. Friends, as good as all of that is, that's counterfeitable. That's fakeable. I know I'm glad to see fire and zeal and the first love growing strong, but do not trust that because it could be that you're a soil that flourishes quickly and cannot take root and you will be taken away. And friends, to those who truly are born again of God, you also need to not trust your emotions. Blessed as they may be, glorious as it may be to have your head and your heart in perfect alignment and all the theology you know lands straight in your emotions and it's all praise God all day. Tremendous. In heaven it'll be like that. But if now your emotions betray you and enslave you and defeat you and tie you down from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, do not trust them. Are you still believing in Jesus Christ? his sacrifice alone for you to, to save you from your sins, then what you cannot see are roots that are going down strong. So do not despise affliction and do not trust your emotions. Those people are the second soil. I, I want to introduce you to someone that doesn't really get a lot of airtime in Reformed Baptist circles, uh, which was a little fair. John Wesley. He was not one of our, our, our close brothers in the exact doctrines of the faith, but friends, he's a brother in the faith. He was a, a devoted follower of Jesus, a, a preacher and evangelist, and, and wrote many hymns. But in his early days, he grew up, went through seminary, started and ran what they called holy clubs. They're basically Bible studies where they kept each other accountable for high levels of holiness. Holy club. Make you want to join one of those. And then he was sent from England in 1735 and 36 over to New England, over to America, to start and pastor churches. And, and he preached to the people this hope of salvation by faith alone. And I want to read to you something that happened on his way over to the colonies. They were in the ship, 
And there was this, this other German group of people called the Moravians, who were Christians who had fled from persecution and were living on Count Zinzendorf's property. And they sent out missionaries all over the world, these Calvinist brothers. Well, these Moravians sent some people out to go to America. And they happened to be on the same boat as John Wesley. Now, I wanna, I'm making the case here that John Wesley was the second soil. Preacher though he was, theologian though he was, holy club though he was in, he was the second soil. He trusted that his emotional state about holy things was sure sign that he was in. Listen to what he said. He said that the Moravians were in the midst of singing a psalm as they began their worship service on the boat. And the sea broke over, split the main sail of the ship in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already begun to swallow us up. A terrible screaming began among the English brothers. The Moravians calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? I'm just reading it as it comes out of his biography, not my English. Was you not afraid? And the Moravian answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? Like, throw me a bone. Tell me I've at least got more guts than your kids. The Moravian replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. Wesley went on for years. He went, ministered for three years in utter failure, depression, and distress, and returned to England sure of one thing. He was not saved. And he began to, to dig in and look around, and we're going to pick up his story at the end of the sermon. So be careful how you hear. Tune in. And then Jesus goes, well, there's a third soil, isn't there? There's, there's this first one that looks pretty real to everybody, but based on impulse, and they fall away. But then there's a third soil. And these friends are the preoccupied hearts. That soil that, that as the seed goes to it, it hasn't been tilled. It hasn't been cleared. It hasn't been taken away of all of the, all, all of the impurities. And so there's weeds all through it. I don't know if, if you have a yard that just gives, the, it is an affliction on you from hell. It is a Genesis 3 curse that, 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 that causes toil to you. And, and, and you wanna, you wanna, all you want is a beautiful golf green style patch in your backyard. One square meter will do. That's all you want. And instead you have these cross vines, these thorns, these disgusting things, these grubs, whatever it is. The, the, it just grows up and it annoys you. And, and, and the worst thing you can do is just go out and spend 50 bucks on seed and throw it on top of that. And yet that's what sometimes happens in the Middle East sowing of the seed. And Jesus uses this as an example. He says, look at verse 18. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These are those who have knowledge and understanding. I want to make this point that the word comes and it seems to get into the soil at some point. It seems to start making headway and some growth. There's an understandable knowledge of the gospel that they hear, maybe even earnestly desire eternal life. They're not indifferent. They're not those who have jumped headlong into Christianity but been fooled. No, no, they're just here. They understand it to be true. They, they want some of it. They appreciate it. But always at the back of their mind, at the forefront of their heart, are the pleasures that the world offers. Maybe even some of them are not bad. 
It's money, which is not evil. It's, it's pleasures, which God made this world to be enjoyed. It's, it's family, or it's a career, or, or it's some kind of reputation. It, none of these things evil in themselves, and yet they make horrible first priorities. They're tremendous gifts of God, but they are terrible gods. They cannot save. In fact, they choke out the word of God. And so some of those people who came to hear Jesus, maybe, maybe this was them who, who would come and in the thousands and they would hear, they would even understand how he, he read with authority and preached with authority and cast out demons with authority. And they said, surely, this is true. This is powerful. This is, this is changing. This is establishing a, a brand new kingdom. And so they wanted to follow. And then Jesus came out with his hard sayings. When he said things like cut off your hand and pluck out your eyeball if they're causing you to sin. When he said to one man and probably many, give away everything you own because it's distracting you from the kingdom. When he said to serve others above yourselves even to death. When he said that he is the bread of life and you have to eat of him in order to gain eternal life when you have to take up your cross and carry it daily, willing to die for God in order to be even considered one of his students. These hard sayings would ring out. And people, though they believed in the merit of what he was saying, their hearts were unconvinced. Maybe they wanted to be convinced. Maybe they wanted to do all those things. But the desires of the deceitful pleasures of the world. Did you see how Jesus said that? The deceitfulness of the desires, the pleasures of this world. They tell you a long story. They, they are great salesmen, the pleasures of this world. And they work together. They know how you think. The pleasures of this world know your flesh, know your lusts, know your desires, and they're great salesmen. They'll tell you there's pleasure here. They'll tell you that riches will solve some problem. They'll tell you something about how they can fix your marriage or your biggest problems. But friends, it's a facade. It's a lie. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And so those who would come today, come to churches and, and they sit down and they acknowledge God and they even believe in the word of God and they want to give an amen to all the, the, the biblical truths. They sense some kind of spiritual connection here and yearn for the instruction that the Bible gives. However, they are preoccupied with the world's goods. They're sitting here, and maybe right now, you, you desire to listen to this because you hear the warnings against eternal damnation. But you cannot take your mind off your financial investments, your business's next step, your, your family's next holiday, your, your reputation, how you might next improve that. The next bit of renovation you're going to do on the house, there's something that sits in your heart the possessions, the sex. There's something, something that you want that you know you just can't have if you give it all, give your whole life to Christ. And so you do not come. You do not receive. And I want you to see the image of that one thing that can save your soul from death eternal, dangling in front of your eyes and thorns, choking it out to death. So it is with those who will hear but have a greater love in other things. These people eventually turn away from genuine worship and biblically following Jesus, even if they, 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 they give some kind of outward display. They find more joy in drinking, more delight in their worldly friends than fellowship, more delight in their career 
than church. And bit by bit, that seed, which, which had begun to bud, is choked out and brings them only death. Well, I want you to look now to verse 20, as Jesus tells the good news that there are those who hear the word of God. He says in verse 20, but, but, friends, it's not all bleak. I, I don't think he's saying a one in four reality. He's not giving us ratios as if one, three quarters of you need to just give up. No, 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 don't count the numbers. He's saying that anybody who drew near, in fact, the group that Jesus is talking to should all seek some kind of hope in what he's saying because they're the ones who pushed in to understand. So I pray that as you go out from here and you read again this parable at home, you would seek to understand, go deeper into it and ask the Lord who alone knows your state. Lord, show me, am I one of these or am I one of the lost? Am I one who have truly understood? And, and as you do, the more you press in, the more surely God will show you. But Jesus says, but there are those that were sown on the good soil, and the ones who hear the word of God accept it and bear fruit. In the ancient Near East, the, a great harvest would be tenfold what you sowed. You sow one bag of seed and you harvest back ten whole bags. This was, a, this was a fair and good harvest. Well, Jesus says that when the gospel goes out, the minimum return is thirtyfold. Some even sixtyfold and some one hundredfold. I want to not complicate this because... We, we, we want to say so often we will, we will escape ourselves from being one of the other soils and we want to assume we're this. And I hope I've made the case none of us can simply assume that being here and believing the right things puts you in the place of the fourth soil. And yet, I don't want to create too much a specific of a, of a picture of what the good soil looks like because from generation to generation, from culture to culture, and each of our lives, it will look somewhat different. What I want to say is the very basics. That what the good soil does is hear the word of God. Uh, you being here today already ticks that off, but that doesn't make you a fourth soil. It just makes you a soil. The next thing that it does is, is the good soil receives the word intentionally. With, with focus, you're here and you've, you're intentionally listening in to what the word would be spoken. You believe that the word is God's word and therefore is worthy to be heard. And, and so if there is misunderstanding, you are pressing in so that there is a hearing, a focus in your heart to hear, and a going and obeying. And that is as simple and clear as I can make it. Look at your life. Is the fruit being born that the hundreds of sermons you've heard is actually changing you whatsoever? I, I know you will not be changed to the degree you desire. But have you been changed? Has the word of God come in and borne fruit in your personality, in your interactions with the pleasures of the world, with, with church and, and the gospel? And we're going to see next week in the parables what you do with the gospel. Has God started to change who you are and what you do? I want to tell you the rest of the story of Mr. John Wesley, who, who went to America, failed in his mission, concluded on the second soil. I have only emotions for this. And, and he started talking and imploring and asking more and more questions to some Moravian missionaries in England and asking questions about faith alone and what that looks like and how you know you're saved. And he says, one night in 17... 38, three years after his storm experience with the Moravians, 
after he'd been struggling month after month with this, he's, he says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society or a church group in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading out loud Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And after uh, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt right then I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that man, in that moment, hearing the gospel on the basis of nothing he'd done, in fact, despite everything he had done in his religious life, neglecting his emotions, not caring what he felt, he said, Jesus Christ, him crucified, was done for me. Friends, I want you to picture Jesus on the cross as he bled and poured out his life. It was for sinners and any sinner and every sinner who will come. That if you come and simply believe whether you have been the first, second, or third soil, the good news is Jesus changes the soils. He can speak a word over you today, and in an instant you can go from the hard and stony, rocky, thorn-infested ground to be a good, receptive soil. Will you lean in? Will you seek for the Spirit to change you? Will you please pray that he would do this heart-soul surgery upon you? And pray for more. Pray that he would also take you and turn you into a fruit-bearing Christian. John Wesley would go on in his evangelistic ministry to preach over 40,000 sermons in the open air to great crowds, and he won unnumbered souls to Christ. And he still wasn't the biggest soul winner of this story. It was the Moravians. It was them who have John Wesley as one of their fruit and all of his souls to thank because they witnessed to this man. I want you to never, never lose hope for your most religious friend, your most sick, sin, death-fueled, hell-loving, atheist pal that you've got, your neighbor, your son, your mother, whoever it is. Hold fast that Jesus can turn the rockiest of souls into a fruit-bearing soil. Friends, let's pray before we sing and we join around the communion table. Father God, we pray to you because you are the Lord of the harvest. And every soil in the world is before you. And every soil in the world is within your reach to toil, to, to, to break up and turn into good soil in a moment. I pray, Lord, that even right now as I spread the seed of the word of God and it lands on all sorts of different soils before me and, and we can't tell the difference here, Lord, you see the heart. I ask that you would in an act of of revealing, would you show to each soul where they truly sit in relation to the word? Would you open to them a realization of whether or not they are simply a hearer or whether they are a hyper-hearer, an obeyer? And of course, God, that the great news is that the first thing we are to obey, hear, and apply is to simply trust in Jesus' salvation for us not a commandment, not a list of what to do and not do, but the first thing we need to hear, receive, and obey is to trust alone in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give that to stony, rocky, thorny hearts this morning. Would you make us a church that bears much fruit for you because Jesus is worthy to be proclaimed. Jesus is worthy to be glorified in the salvation of sinners. May you hear our prayers. 
and our worship as we stand to sing. Lord God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our final song?